once came another man who... Style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely... Welcome to the chess underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. Alright, so I'm here with Brian Wall, um, life master, national master, prolific chess author. And Brian, I think you know this, but I want this to be the definitive Brian Wall interview stamp of approval, you know, Pulitzer prize winning, <laughs> never going to be replicated, never going to be duplicated. Open up your heart, open up your heart, <laughs> spill it all out to me. <laughs> all right. Let me start with the story of how we met. You remember it now. Yeah. Okay. So all I, right. I had a nine year old student, Tyler Hughes. Okay, can he please be a little older for the sake of the story because I lost to him? <laughs> no, no, he's not nine at, at the time of the story. Okay. But I, I started teaching at nine about once a month. And I remember I took my son in a, like a like a baby seat you know, in the car, my first lesson. So uh, Tyler Hughes was amazing. He was, I remember he was doing like 15 move checkmates when he was like nine or 10 already. So he's tactically gifted. And right now he has some degree in like biochemistry. He's married with a great job in, in New York. But uh, I was teaching him and then I talked myself out of a job. I told his mother that a teacher must be at least 400 points above a student. <laughs> <laughs> but he went from like zero to 2000 in like, a, you know, in no time. So then uh, Christensen was teaching him and Gingy S. Billy and some other guys. So Christensen taught him the Evans Gambit. And anytime I've, I've hung out with Larry and done children on that, whenever that guy just unleashes his tactics on you, it just blows your mind, you know. So um, then you played Tyler, and you can tell me how that went. It did not go particularly well for me. <laughs> I think he, he went five zero in the Midwest Masters or something. Yeah, it was the front Masters, right? They're it was like the Mid American Open, and uh, I think he did go five zero, and I was one of his victims. Uh, he played a uh, an Evans Gambit against me, and basically, I thought I had defended perfectly, and I thought I was like, okay, I'm back, I'm back in business. And then the kid just sacks his queen, and I have to resign. <laughs> so I was like, you know, okay, this is going pretty well. The, the game of the Colorado Century, because he was as old as Bobby Fischer when he sacked his queen against Donald Byrne. Yeah. He was like 13, and like I did a heavy analysis of it. You did, Tyler, did we all, we were trading analysis, and that's how we met. Yeah. And I think the analysis was basically uh, he played brilliantly and crushed me. Well, no, it was, there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of you know it was a complicated <laughs> game with You're, a lot of. I appreciate you doing me some favors there. <laughs> no, no, he, he got in time pressure, and then his technique was sort of slowing down. You know. Yeah, you know, I remember. Um, I remember. I don't know how it happened. I, I played in the Mid American Open, 
And then shortly thereafter, I just magically started getting emails from you. Uh, so it's like you're the you're the email vampire. You just you suck the email out of the no, out of thin I, air and you add them no, to your email list. Ninety nine point nine percent of people stop my email. They can't handle it. It's too much. I remember Elizabeth Potts. She's like a woman grandmaster and the and a daughter of a grandmaster. Okay. She's she says she sent me an unsubscribe notice like everyone does. Right. But she she added this slide. How the hell did I get on this list anyway? <laughs> so, what I would do is if I played anyone on ICC and their profile had an email, I would just add them on my list. I added all of Ireland immediately because my dad was Irish. I just would add everyone that I possibly could. And they would all go away. <laughs> I was like an unhandy graybeard loon from the Samuel Coleridge story. I mean, to, to be quite honest, you know, their loss um, – your email list is what uh, really, I think, made us become quite good friends. You know, you, you produced a lot of analysis in the mid-2000s. You'd look at top Grandmaster games. Um, the one that I love, the, the very first uh, Brian Wall email address that got me, or Brian Wall email that got me hooked, was your analysis of uh, Sokolov Morozovich in an Albin counter gambit where you kept infusing these lines from the movie Amadeus, right? Like <laughs> yeah. Morozovich was like the composer pulling the strings and poor Sokolov was, yeah. was just getting played. Yeah, I do that a lot. One, one I liked is I played the, uh, there's a grandmaster from Mongolia that was here for a while, Sharabdorf Dashtabeg. Yes, actually I have a, I have a Sharabdorf story too, but yes, go on. And I had Apocalypse Now quotes and <laughs> And one of them was it shouldn't have mattered that his father was a grandmaster, but it did. <laughs> I just, I just like because usually good movies have fantastic quotes. That's true. <clears throat> but also, I go to philosophers and Shakespeare, or any anybody I can think of that fits, or or videos too. Well, I was a door to door salesman. They said half the people do not know what you're saying. <laughs> like English is a second language, or they're not interested, and they turned off. Right. And also people learn differently. So I had a website, Wolverine.com, where I had like pictures of music. And basically I'm coming at you with every form of stimulus. And ho hopefully one of them gets through. Yeah, I think so it works. Yeah, I, I put in, you know, as much as I can to get through the person. One of one of the quotes that I that I will never forget. And I'm I'm just going to say up front to all of my listeners, I shamelessly am plugging Brian Wall's email list here. I know email lists are like 1997 and AOL.com and all that stuff, <laughs> but no, I really am. I, I think it's great. It's such a good read. It's so entertaining. And, uh, and one of the quotes I'll never forget was you were talking about a chess move and I forgot what game it was and I forgot the move, but I'll never forget how you described the move. You said, you know, uh, player a, and you'll probably remember this as soon as I as soon as I say it. Player A is like you know, the kid with the sweater at the prom, and player B is the guy who knows that there are no rules and rides in on his motorcycle in a leather jacket, steals his girlfriend, <laughs> and takes off into the sunset. Do you remember that quote? Do you remember it? That sounds totally like something I would say. Yeah. I wish but I, I had the game. You know what? We're gonna find that. I'm gonna. You're gonna send me. You said you've got an archive of all your past emails zipped, downloaded somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to find that. We're going to post that and we're going to upload it so that our, our listeners can see what I'm talking about. I mean, you're 
people who know me very well know that I don't dish out compliments, you know, lightly. But I, I will say your writing about chess is like really inspired and entertaining. Well, I want to talk about my father for a minute. He loved my email list. And I, even though he wasn't into chess too much, I mean, he did teach me the game. But he would try to get all my brothers to read it. And he says, it's not just about chess. You get you can get a lot out of it, you know. But when uh, after I'd been writing these emails for 10 years, I happened to look at my father's birth certificate, and I got chills because under occupation, he put writer. Hmm. I know that he was a salesman, but he put writer, and that just, you know, that just meant it was in my blood, you know. So this was your, you mean your birth certificate that your, your father had no, put his yes. occupation on? Well, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it was mine. And then because when you're born, you don't, yeah. you don't need an op- occupation right, right away. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's my birth certificate, and he put his occupation on it. Right. I mean, I know in in previous years, you know, child labor was a thing, but. um. (laughs) So I'm going to. I have a million old stories, but I'll tell you a couple just from this week, okay? Okay. Because the whole reason I did the email is Jerry Kearns. He's a senior master who's 5 0 against me. He says, Brian, you've got to blog or something because things happen and don't happen to anyone else. So, um, in my experience, knowing you, I I would concur with that statement. There's this, uh, expert named Jesse Hester. Okay. And he says he wants to be a master. So I said, I'll bet you two steak dinners. You cannot be a master in one year. All right. So I wait, you, you uh, bet him that, right? Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I'm actually encouraging you to be a master. We study together, but just, just curious, just curious. Where do you stand? Because I know you make a lot of steak dinner bets. You had a Gunnar Anderson 2300 yeah. steak dinner bet. Yeah. Where do you stand all time? Like, are you plus or are you minus on the steak dinner bets? Full minus. <laughs> <laughs> no hesitation. No well, hesitation. 2290s like 10 times. I keep choking. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get to like 2297 and, and like get made it a one or something. It just, it was definitely some kind of barrier there. It was the gunner, like, curse, the gunner isn't curse. Isn't there a barrier around the Earth with a like a spaceship would burn up if it yeah. crossed it? Isn't that the yeah? yeah. Oh, that's you. You kept running into that. Isn't that just like the ozone layer? I don't know. Some scientist uh, listener is gonna is like slapping their head right now. Like, how do they not know the <laughs> the name of that stratosphere I, I, or so mesosphere? Do it with regular openings. I'll play like H five the first move, you know. Like, I have to win it my way. It's not just enough to get to 20 at the end. Yeah, I definitely want to get into you. I definitely want to get into your 40-move challenge, but I feel like we've really sidetracked the Jesse Hester story. Yeah, well, this will be quick. So uh, <laughs> I, I did lose. Just get, the, Trump, get I, this over with. We'll move on. And I, and, I'll, and I put out 15 reasons why it's disgusting to lose to Jesse Hester, you know. Like okay. the bet. Also, I paid for Amazon Prime, and he worked at the Amazon warehouse. So I said, customer. I mean, employees should not be sassy to customers. <laughs> so then he just beat me again on Tuesday. And I said, which one of the 15 reasons really like got under your skin and motivated you? He goes, it was the one where you quoted what Castro said about Cram- uh, not Kramnik, uh, Kamsky. Castro, uh, like Kamsky beat Castro. And Kamsky said he's pretty good within a very limited range. <laughs> like he has a very limited range of ideas, but he's pretty good within that narrow little circle, you know. So that's what I said about Jesse Hester. <laughs> that's the one that just gave him so much motivation. He beat me Tuesday. 
I, I have Man, a sense have that you often yeah. and frequently give your opponents motivation to beat you in the form <laughs> <Yeah>. of emails. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is me and uh, this guy, Gunnar Anderson, he's like a 20-year-old, 2300. We have this thing of who's more charming, who connects to people better, all right? So okay. we do things like this. Like I went to the uh, Chicago Open. This old, I asked this old man for directions. The old man like ran home, jumped in his car, found me, and brought me, me and Gunnar to the tournament. Oh wow! I, that that's the kind of effect they have in people. I just talked to him for one minute, and he's he's now I'm like his new life mission is to take care of Brian Wall. <laughs> so then uh, Gunnar would call me from Europe and said, "Hey, Brian." A guy just said I could stay at his house for a month. <laughs> so we tried to outdo each other, right? So we had the crappiest club in Colorado, which is one you went to. The crappiest club in, in Colorado? We went to it, the Jeffco Club. I love the Jeffco guys. Club. What's crappy about yeah. that? Well, they've been the same four guys have been playing bug house for forty years. They're you know what? I'm just gonna say this. I I consider myself a pretty good bug house player. Right. And those guys were like beating me, you know, yeah. like they were good. They were legitimately That's good. Shout out to the Jeffco yeah. chess club <laughs> playing bug house. By the way, can we just, can I just briefly interject? And I'm sorry to interrupt your story. Yes. They yeah. play a weird bug house variant where you cannot look at the other person's clock. For some reason they stopped that. What? But they played that way for like 10 years. To me that like made the Jeffco chess. Yeah. You couldn't look at the other person's clock. And if you asked the opponent, they could, or if you asked your partner, they could only say, I'm a little ahead, or I'm kind of ahead, or way ahead on time. That's all you also, could say. Also, suggest a move, you lose. And if you give a false claim of mate, you lose. Yeah, I think I well, did that some, one time. Somehow they've dropped all those rules. I don't know why. Well, they're 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 joining. They're rejoining the rest of the Bughouse community. <laughs> yeah, but they <laughs> well, had their own Welcome rules, back, Jeff. I had I set up Bughouse championships, and we had both rules in play. I gotta say, like it was, it was very weird to play with that subset of rules, but I kind of liked it, and I was yeah. kind of looking forward to going back to the Jeffco Chess Club at some point. Where do they play? Like North Denver somewhere? Yeah, the, the Grandview Inn. Grandview Inn, which was like a CD bar, as I recall. It's they like play in, basically 58th and Wadsworth. They play in like the back room of the CD bar. The night I was there, they were playing like live that music. Was, it's a little. This is a bit different bar, sort of. Yeah, near near the back. Okay. It's a nice bar. It's got it's pretty clean. It's got good food. They've changed There's locations on me then. Yeah, a little bit. Like uh, you know, like two blocks away. Okay. When I when I though I remember the time I went. You remember you and I hung around afterwards, and there was like a trivia thing and live music going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, go ahead. So I call this club in the in the world is they they have trouble getting holding on to new members. Because you're kind of like bughouse addicts, and other people just want to play regular chess. Right. And and but the other thing is that thousands of kids play bughouse, so why can't they get the kids showing up? Because whenever I teach a chess class and say do what you want to do, they break out into bughouse. Right. So for some reason they can't attract the thousands of kids that, that love bughouse. Anyway, so I wanted to do this thing for Gunner. Uh, I didn't tell him about it. I said, I'm going to see how many people I could get to this chess club. Now, were there any parameters? Like, did they have to come for more than one meeting or? No, no, just one night. Like, they just, just had to show up one night. Okay. This is like two days ago. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so I, I used every trick in the book. There's, there's been this girl, this beautiful girl, Victoria, who's 23. 
she'd been showing up at all the chess things. Um, and so I told these two guys her age that she was coming tonight. All right. And then after I told, after I got them coming to the club, I told one to email her and one to Instagram. So she ended up showing up. <laughs> so we basically got like, they got like five times the normal number of people. Wow. And, and, and the, the Grandview Inn was completely packed with Christmas shoppers. So it was like so packed that I had to like go out. I get a little claustrophobic because when you're like 300 pounds, wherever you stand, you're in somebody's way, you know. So I just like <laughs> went outside to pull back. And then you weren't in anybody's way. No, but I was happy because I had made all this happen, you know. Right, right. It's usually these four guys, and if one doesn't show up, the three are really frustrated. Yeah, because you need you need the fourth partner. Yeah. Yeah, you were playing them. Uh, I think two at a time. I was. I was playing both boards. Yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of unfair because I could see both clocks and they couldn't. All right. Well, that's enough of the present. Let's go back to the past. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the host here? All right, go ahead. Where well, are we? Actually, Hold on. Can I make a time machine noise? When you get too old, they say, you, like. Uh, Lane, Anatoly Lane said that to me. The future is my past. You know, you know I got an Anatoly Lane story. I played him one time. I played him like twice. Of it. Yeah, he's more your generation, right? I, I don't recall exactly his age or when he was, but he's more your generation. He's probably as old as my dad. Wow. In one of my games, Anatoly Lane, um, I, I had some middle game wins that Gingy and Billy pointed out to me. And... Uh, I went for three connected pass pawns and a rook versus two rooks. Okay. And it turns out it's drawn if the two rooks get behind the pawns and sort of aim at them from behind. Yeah, the rooks belong behind pass pawns, right? Yeah. Well, he said you. He thought I should have won the game and that I needed maybe some endgame lessons or something. Anyway, he was always <laughs> very good to me. He would play blitz with me. And uh, so I really liked Lanatoli Lane a lot. Let me tell you some of my favorite uh, Gingy at Billy stories. Okay. Right? Wait, are we going? Is this the part where we go to the past? Yeah. Okay. I got to do my like time 10... machine noise. Do, 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 do. <laughs> All right. We're in the past. Roman Gingy. Right, okay. Gingy was here like uh, for a year. Yeah. Now, these were some of, by the way, my favorite emails were your Roman Gingy. Oh, I'm going to mess up his last name. Gingy at um, yeah. Some of the emails you sent about him were my absolute all-time favorite. Like the one where the anti-computer emails where he was playing the, the computer engines, Gingy style. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, what, he would, what he would do with the computer is he would play it unrated first and find its weaknesses and then play it rated. So, he, he, I mean, he had like – I think he had like the highest – ICC rating at one point, like 32 or 3 or 3,400, something like that. So this was back on ICC when, number one, you could have a computer account. Right. right? And it would just say C by your name. And number two, um, you know, the computers each had different names and they were just like essentially a bot that you could click on and play anytime you felt like. Yeah. So he could play them all day if he wanted. To me, it was like Harry Potter coming to life. I mean, he would... He would play these English GMs half a day to just destroy them. Guys like no. how? How is that Harry Potter coming to life? Well, I mean, like a kid, <laughs> like a kid. A oh, kid okay. Harry Potter went to a kid's room and started waving his wand around because I read about Ginger. You know, it was like a 
you know, I don't know. It's like Justin Bieber coming to a teenage girl's room or something. To be around Gen Z was like incredible. He's telling me stories about Tall and Spassky and Bosnick. It was just, it was just heaven for me. So uh, this is one of my favorite Gen Z stories. He, uh, if you've been in Denver, you know we get Miller Moss invasion sometimes. Uh, all of a sudden, they just all start reproducing into this Miller Moss everywhere, right? So it sounds pretty miserable. He's in his apartment, and the the whole apartment they come in like you know like a plague of locusts, you know. And he's going, uh, "What the f- this is?" <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Brian, we can't say that. All right, well, what the f- this is? And he's like batting off his the balls, and I'm just cracking and laughing. But this is my all-time favorite Genji story, which I could not stop laughing. <laughs> so wait, he's like walking backwards, smacking him yeah, with his yeah, hands. And... Just what the F this is, you know. Like he's never okay. seen it before, never even heard of it. Right. <laughs> but it was a common thing in Denver, you know, something you get used to as a kid. So, but this is my all-time favorite. So Genji loves his computer. He, he, we have usually an apartment and then a computer. He used to, used to have two or four computers working on opening innovations at all times. I consider one of the greatest opening trainers in the world. You know, he sounds a lot like one of my previous guests, Dr. Henry Getz. Um, He's got this crazy computer set up. He's got like four towers hooked up to his home TV at all times, and he can like control it with his phone. It's insane. (laughs) Like I go into his apartment and it's just like a bunch of computers hooked up to a TV and like uh, a couple of guitar amps and like four or five guitars. And that's, that's the whole thing. Like there's no furniture. There's no nothing. Anyway, go ahead. No, but yeah, but he, that, that was what he loved to play bullet. Okay. Blitz. And, uh, and he would, if he lost, he would say, I'm going to beat the guy 10 times in a row. He would just crush everybody. And as soon as he logged on, he had like a hundred followers. So, uh, one time his computer crashes, you know, which is like disaster for him. So this is what I this had me laughing for an hour straight. He calls up Comcast. <laughs> and they ask, okay, anyone who's called up Comcast knows where this story is going. All right, they go ahead. first they ask him to spell his name, which is a riot. So in my emails, I would tell people how to pronounce his name. So the first yeah. syllable is a bottle of gin. Gin. And then like G, like G, I just lied. Gin and, G. And then the next one is you have to cough. <laughs> Gingy. Yeah, you have to go cash. I mean, that's how they do it in Soviet. Okay, Gingy Cash. Gingy Cough Ash Billy, you know. So that's how you have to say his name. Gingy uh, Cough I did that once with Votkevich. I put it in an email like vote and then the letter K and then bitch. Voitkevich. That's how I've always heard it pronounced. Yeah. I don't know if that's Volkovich. right. Votkevich. Yeah. So one of my Denver buddies, like, Saw him in an elevator and said his name. He was like shocked. It's like probably the first time he heard an American say his name correctly. Vojtkovich. 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 Yeah, something like that. I think I might be one of the last generations of American players to have faced Vojtkovich over the board. Well, I, I, I played him twice in tournament. I games. did too. And they, um, John, there's another story, but. Jonathan Hilton put my game in his book where they wrote a book about Vukovic and the Catalan. I remember that book. Yeah. yeah. After he wrote it, I said, I played Vukovic, so put my game in there too, even though I lost. Um, that actually is another great story which I'll tell next about Jonathan Hilton. Just remind me. 
So anyway, okay. so Comcast says, can you spell your name, sir? You know, he spells Kinji uh, <laughs> has billet. So right. then they disconnect and disconnect like 10 friggin' times. He has to say his Does name. Does he have to spell his name every American time? <laughs> say, right? So finally, right. he decides to try a new approach. <laughs> he says, uh, do you consider this good customer service? I don't. I've been on the phone 10 different times. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I'm going to do. This is right after 911. I am going to set a bomb at your headquarters. <laughs> and I am going to set it for maximum impact. And if there's not a repairman at my door, like in the morning, 8 o'clock, that's when I set the bomb off. And he hangs up. <laughs> so first I was laughing. I said, oh, oh no. Oh, you should know that he's the most patient person on the chessboard and the least patient person off the chessboard. Like if he goes up to a counter and there's no one there, he'll start ringing the bell like 20 times. He has no no patience <laughs> off the chessboard. He'll, he'll squeeze like a small advantage on the chessboard for five hours. That's different. So the fact of him constantly having to be disconnected and saying his name and then spending it with a box, and I happened to stay in his couch that night, and sure enough, eight in the morning, there was a knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Police or Comcast, one of the two, you know. But Which I one was, was it? I, it was the Comcast, but I was rolling off the couch laughing. Oh, my stop. God. Wow. Uh, all right, let me tell you the Jonathan Hilton story. Okay, now Jonathan Hilton uh, is a chess author, or help me help me out here. Who is this? Um, he was Roman uh, Jindjashvili, chess grandmaster, trainer, etc. Jonathan Hilton. I think he's like a twenty three hundred. Pretty. He was as young as Tyler Hughes. They were buddies. Okay. Okay. And he would he writes articles for Chess Life occasionally. Okay. And he, he wrote that book on, um, the Catalan with Ippolito. I have an Ippolito story right after that. We're going to just keep segueing. Into just one keep going. Just keep going. Now. All right. Um, and after that, my first day at ICC, I'll tell you that. I, I, you know, I want to hear. All right. Okay. Let, let's let's go oh, with okay. this story. And then I got right. a story I, I want to ask you about. I'm going to tell the stories I mentioned, then I'm going to open it up to you, okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you can ask me anything, all right? I love This is great. I don't even have to ask questions. This is wonderful. Right, yeah. All right. Go ahead. All right. So the first one is Jonathan Hilton. Right? So I met Tyler when he was nine. I think I trained him like once a month for two years. And then he was already so good that he's getting grandmaster help. Right. So then, um, and I taught him the fishing pole. And I remember this 10-year-old kid yelled at, um, I turned the fishing pole into a worldwide phenomenon. Right. I was going to say, so the fishing India. pole is really like the iconic Brian Wall. Like, <clears throat> I, I think anyone who didn't know you as well would probably start with the fishing pole, right? Like yeah. that's what you're most closely associated with. Yeah, actually people and it's say, a, are you the fishing pole guy? You know, Right, exactly. And so just so our listeners know, the fishing pole, and we're going to dig up some fishing pole emails to publish. I did a full waiter game this month. So. The fishing pole is a line in the Roy Lopez where basically it's kind of like the exchange Roy Lopez. You just play knight g4, you play pawn h5, and you dare them to take it. <laughs> right there, yeah yeah you go knight g4 at some you're black they yeah. play the royal lopez at some point you know you go knight white c6 castles. you go bishop c5 white castles, white castles. Yeah. as soon as white castles you go knight g4 you play pawn h5 when they kick it with pawn h3 and you say take me 
and and so on and so forth. And I remember every email that you would send out that was a fishing pole email. You know, the title yeah. would be like such and such loses to the fishing pole, right? And the right. first and and the line as soon as they would go h takes g4 your comment was always the same yeah opening the gates of hell yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and Andal was the denver chess champion he i i he was one of my first victims he said i felt like i was opening the gates of hell right okay anyway right. so jonathan now hilton. we know what the fishing pole is right let's get back to jonathan hilton all right so he published an uh, so i taught uh john i taught um, Tyler Hughes, who's nine, the fishing pole. And I, uh, because he's, I said, listen, you know, it, it may not be sound, but it's tactical. And you can see that people, when you put them under pressure, that they collapse, that nobody in Colorado or mostly the world can make only moves or really fight any kind of pressure. I just wanted him to learn that. So um, I call it dancing on the edge of the volcano. So and a ten-year-old yelled at him, "I'm not going to fall for your cheesy trap." You know, they were already sick of it in the in the elementary school. So, um, so Jonathan Hilton wrote an article about how creative and dynamic Tyler Hughes' style was, okay. which completely pissed me off because it was like, "Wait a minute, this is I'm Doctor Frankenstein. This is my monster, and you don't even mention my name." So you know how when you play chess, you find a reason to hate them or be angry or motivate yourself. Right. So when I, I'm paired with Hilton in the in the World Open, I said, I'm gonna show you where Tyler has <laughs> got his style from. <laughs> and I just ripped him to shreds, okay? Just vicious aggression and sacrifice and nonstop. And he um there's an epilogue. Then he, he ate the score sheet. He ate it, the score sheet. It bothered him so much he ate the score sheet. And then I like wrote physically piece, devoured the physically piece of paper. Ate the score sheet. Okay. Then I did an email calling him Goat Boy. And then he wrote an article about oh, uh, top ten losses that I learned something from. Him. That one, that was one of them. And then <laughs> was the lesson put, not to eat your score sheet. <laughs> and then he put me on the CGA awards as a judge. So okay, would, CGAA so, is Chess Journalists of America. Yeah, and I would I would look at Chess Life articles and and vote for which ones I like the best. Right. And Watson, uh, I I just put together the Denver Open. Well, not me, but my team, and we we're going to do it again. We're going to have Grand Masters coming to Denver. Like uh, I would love to come. Do you know? I, I think it confl- it always conflicts with our National Junior High though. The first of May. Um, May one. Yeah. Maybe I can make that this year. I would I would absolutely love to come play. That's a tournament that I mean, you know, I drove out there from Iowa to come play in that back before well, my life got busy. Well, I I, uh, I would have been president of the Denver Chess Club just to do something like this for five you years. You brought the year that I came out, you brought Gotakamski out. No, no, he just called me out of the clear blue, says I'm in Kansas. What kind of incentive can you offer me to play? And he came and played, and I play. I had to play him. <laughs> I played I him and you back to back. One more round, and I was going to play the Lamping, 986. I played Kamsky and you back to back. And uh, Oh, yeah, our game was pretty tough, too. I that think. was the game where I, where I basically played like an idiot, our, our game. Yeah. I just played like a true chump for like the first 80% of the game. And yeah. then you made one bad decision, and I suddenly <laughs> sprung to life. <laughs> I was just like getting crushed for all those moves. You know, you're right though. Like this is an interesting chess phenomenon. I find 
like I have a really hard time motivating myself to want to beat you because we're such close friends, you know, and, and we've known each other so long. So whenever you and I play, I just I feel like I'm playing weak moves like almost on purpose, you know, like, like I'll like do this, I'll do that. To get it over with, kind of, you know. Yeah. Not, not yeah. bring in full deep mode, you know. And then the and moment then, you do something that insults me, like make a bet, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I'm just going to crush Pete now with this sacrifice or whatever it is. Then yeah. I like wake up and I'm like, all right, I guess I got to play. <laughs> it, so there's like this idea of motivation in chess and how like, you know, how you can play. Another another example is another one of our games. You might remember this remains to this day the longest tournament game I have ever played. You remember this game? It was at the North American Open in Oklahoma. The one that I won? Because you won, you won, by, you won by half a point because I wanted to go see a movie, yeah. <laughs> so it was a 10-round tournament, and I figure one half-point buy in the middle of the tournament is a smart thing because you get to take a break, you get a breather, right? You can you can relax and have some downtime, and you don't doesn't cost you as the much energy. The way I introduce myself to my chess class is how many times have I won the North American Open, and they think I'm like champion of America or something. <laughs> I say just one. So the North the North American Open, you remember that game though, right? It was a hundred and forty one yeah. move game. Oh, that was our game, yeah. Yeah. yeah rook ending, yeah. We where we botched every basic rook end game. Right. I had like the third rank. We botched Philidors, we botched long right. side, short side, short side. Yeah, yeah. That was when I went in. get wrong, you got, we got wrong. Right. After that game, that game compelled me to go study Rook End games. And then I wrote a Chess Life article about it. You remember that? Yeah. I went and studied Rook End games for like a year. I was like, I'm never screwing that up that badly again. <laughs> yeah, I also did an article, you know, all the analysis of what I missed. And like, I remember you said, I can't believe I got off the third rank. You yeah, know, like I, I teach kids. Like, why you know? would I get off the third rank? You know? I teach kids. You put you when you're the defending side against one pawn. You put your rook on the third rank. You put your king anywhere in front of the pawn, and it's a draw. And then right. for some reason I had that, and then for some reason I just like moved my rook somewhere else. <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> for no reason. And then you yeah. immediately took the third rank, and I was like, Yeah, no, because I beat a lot of amateurs by taking the third rank, and then it's a lot right. harder. You can still draw, but it's much more complicated. And there's another thing that I didn't know at the time was that if you have like your king in front of the <coughs> pawn, then you're supposed to put your rook, you're supposed to line them up like a snowman. Right. Rook goes at the very back, then the pawn yeah. and the king. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know. Or actually, no, rook goes at the very, at the very front if you're, if you're the attacking, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. It would be like rook f1 and then king f4, king f3 pawn f5. and pawn f4. I yeah. didn't know that setup. I, I might have done it by accident because I tried like every other square, but I didn't know that was the key idea. I remember in that game, I was looking for the fifty move rule, and you got to like move forty eight, and then you moved your pawn. <laughs> 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 also, uh, I I did that three in a row thing against Dwayne Langstaff, and I still yeah. screwed it up. I did oh, the wow. king all on me like the f five, and I still screwed it up again three. So there's always more to know in that stuff, you know. Every time right. you think you know it, you don't, you know. You don't. No, that's true. Where were so, we? We got way off track. So you uh, finished let me the tell Jonathan you one about the, uh, my first time on ICC, all right? Okay. So Internet Chess Club, your first time on ICC. Yeah, we, when we is this, a... like 1990? Oh, uh, 2006. That was your first time on ICC? Because yeah, ICC a, has been around a while. No, as a commentator. Oh, as a com not as a player, but as a, yeah. Okay. No talking, right. everyone. So okay. we had a guy in town. So we yeah, I remember you used to do ICC commentary with you and 
Who was your co-host? Was it? Um... Oh, I had a lot. I had Bill Pascal on. Right. Okay. I, that's who I was thinking of. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. So I, uh, we had a guy, Bill Chandler, in town. He had cerebral palsy. So he could sit there all day long and be the like if there was a tournament, he could make the just sit there and make the moves for them. Okay. So he recommended, hey, why don't you give Brian a try? You know. Right. So my first show, the computer's down, or the re, no, the relay to the tournament is down. So okay. there's no moves. So all we did, me and Pascal, we did, we did this. We just told one Harvard Square story after another, and they go, <laughs> my God, this guy doesn't even need, need, need moves. He's entertaining the people. He's got just as much viewership as when they actually have moves, you know. So then I did that for a year until I got like a new manager and put in a lot of other people. And I made a Kobe laugh for losing the Kobe. I said, my being a commentator proves it's not what you know, but who you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would probably get And I, I was thinking like John Watson would be so much better. So I'm really glad they put in John Watson. Yeah. Um... All right, so I, I'm going to interrupt because we're, we've gone to the past, and it's my turn to ask a question because, after yeah. all, I am the host. I'm going to open it up to you now. I'm, I'm going to – oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> no, I mean I just wanted to like help get some of the stories out of my system. Right. I mean, you know, honestly, that's how your email list is to me. It's just you're getting stuff out of your system, and it's so much fun to read. So I strongly encourage your listeners to go and – um it's just brianwallchess3 at town.com, T-A-O-M.com. Um, or brianwallchess4 at yahoo.com. Or brianwallchess4 at yahoo.com. Just go and sign up. It's really great, and I I really enjoy them. I'm also on Facebook as Brian Douglas Wall. All right, I just want to say something about my emails. It's like the story forms in my chest, and you're a writer, you understand this, and it burns, it's burning a hole in my chest until I get it out of my system. It feels like an ulcer almost. I completely agree. I mean, um, and sometimes you have to let it burn for a while too. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you When you really have a story that you know needs to come out, you have to right. let it burn long enough until until you know how to get it out, well, if that form, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Form, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to take uh, host duties for just a moment here. One of my favorite emails, I just want to ask you to tell this story. Okay. There was one where you went to Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that one. Thank you, you slept. You slept in a car. You, so you right. went. Okay. Now the reason I want to talk about this is because you know the show is the Chess Underground, right? Yeah. And I think that American Chess, a lot of American chess players can relate to this story. You know, American Chess. The way it works is you get to tournaments. Sometimes, if you live in less populated states, you got to travel. You get to tournaments however you can. You ride share. You take a car. You know what I mean? Well, it's very romantic when you're 20. All four of you get in a car and sleep in the car yeah. or in a sleeping bag. It's, it's very romantic. You go there and have fun, and then you come back. You know? Right. I mean, I think I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to this story because I think a lot of American chess players have this experience of, I'm just trying to get to the tournament so I can play. You know, you sort of you sort of like do anything for the hobby. You know what I mean? You know, I think it was Carl Bohr has the exact same dream as you. A previous guest, Fide Master Carl Bohr. He's always talking about yeah, the chess I, I man. Carl gonna... Bohr. Yeah. All right. So here's the one. Hold on. Jack Moore beat him in a 5 1 game. <laughs> and he told Jack, uh, no, not, no. I'm mixing it up. Another guy. Uh, the, the David Zimbeck. 
beat him in a five one game, and Bourne demanded that he take that video. <laughs> my and understanding is that Carl and Zimbeck are now quite good friends. So, and oh, I they are good and part of and my they're deal, good. they're like strong twenty three hundred or twenty four hundred. Twenty four, yeah. And part of my deal with Carl to get him to come on the show was I had to promise that I would bring Zimbeck on in the future. So, um, oh yeah, Zimbeck yeah. is. I have a lot of Zimbeck stories too. But but go ahead. We're going to stay with Wyoming. We're going to stay with Wyoming. All right. So I think a lot of. Um, American chess players can relate to stories like this because, you know, I myself one time, you know, got stuck on the side of the road in a snowstorm in South Dakota, you know, in my tiny little Toyota with two other chess players. <laughs> we ended up, we ended up like hiking our way to a supermarket in like Garland, Iowa and sleeping on tables, you know, I mean, so anyway, this, the email and the story that I want to hear about, I'm just going to give you the, the, the rough intro and then you can take away the details. Okay. You were playing at, I think it was some community college. You slept in a car parking lot and you were awoken by the crack of a bullwhip. <laughs> do you remember this one? Do you remember this story? Yeah, I do. Okay, I do. so now help us out here. Fill us, tell, tell us the whole thing. Okay. Well, first of all, the, uh, the, the, there's a, the son of a chess player lived with me for a while. He was going to like airplane school. Okay. So he's a, Airplane school. He, he lived with me when he was in school. Okay. So, um, little known fact, I can name most of the World War II aircraft and their call signs. Oh, okay. Cool. P-47 so, uh, Grumman Avenger. Anyway, go so ahead. Sorry. I drove up to Wyoming and the parking lot was full of snow. It was a Laramie College. Okay. It's like 100, 100 miles straight north of Denver. Okay. So, in the snow, you know, there's, you can't see any sign, you know, any lines, okay? Right. There's like like parking lines, parking right? Lot. Like yeah. there's no nothing in the parking lot but snow when I parked, and I think I fell asleep there. And then uh, this kid that was studying uh, the, how to be an airplane pilot, he he's like a hick. I mean, he's he knows how to, you know. <laughs> no, he has he knows how to do all the farm stuff, you know. All the I mean, farm stuff, not some of the farm cow, stuff. You know, they have a whole day where they cut the <laughs> testicles off the cows and they offer it to you. It's pretty horrible if you. Oh, they do, huh? All right. Yeah, they they save you once. <laughs> you know, no, I'm good. You know, so uh, to me, it was like uh, the you realize that you just talked everyone in the world out of ever playing a chess tournament in, in Wyoming. No, it was like my mom was Jewish. <laughs> to me, it looked like something out of the Holocaust. You know, oh, like Doctor Megale. But they they have a system where certain bulls they want to keep going. I guess they want to make the bull, you know, whatever traits they want, they have to weed out the herd for this. This is is normal practice for any farmer. Okay. So um, so anyway, this guy, you know, he's got a whip. You know, he's just like cracking the whip in the parking lot. In the, the middle the of winter. Yeah, he's cracking the whip in the parking lot. Just to wake so you up. I, so I go into and play in the tournament. When I come back, like all all the parking spots are now taken because all the students are there. Right. And there's a note. <laughs> there's a note on my car because I'm taking two spots because <laughs> all, all the snow. It's a totally different scenario. It's daylight. There's, uh, there's lines everywhere. Every spot is taken. Oh and no! And there's an idiot from from Denver who's taking two spots in the parking lot. You know. Right. So then I said, he, he wrote a note, uh, 
admonishing my uh, parking skills and questioning my sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. It was like a handwritten note, you know, right. that a young person would write, you know. You can sort of fill in the details with your imagination, I suppose, is the, is the idea. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> now, I, there was some other part of that story, too. Something about, like, a jug of water on top of the hood or something. You know what I'm talking about? That sounds familiar, but I don't remember it. Maybe it's froze or something. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember the, the part of the story either. The detail in your emails is, is just incredible, um, and I remember them for... Uh, you know, what is it, years now since that, that one happened? Well, remember when Wesley Soul got yelled at for writing on a score sheet? Yeah, actually, uh, I was at that I, tournament. That was in St. Louis, and I was in attendance. Oh okay. oh, okay. I do that all the time, like, on my score sheet. I yeah. write little reminders of what I want to write about later, so I would be disqualified every game. Oh, like for your have, emails? Like, you score mean? sheet, they have little, like, crib notes all over it, you know? <laughs> just so I can tell the story better later, you know. As I recall, Wesley Sows, you know, it was something like, you know, you can do it, you know, with self-encouragement. Yeah. But yours yeah, are, are more like cool. cracked bullwhip in parking lot before. <laughs> yeah, <I'd> be. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right. So on that note, um, you know, since you mentioned your tournament games and your tournament play, one of the things that I find hilarious and want to try myself at some point in the very near future is your 40 move challenge, as you call it. Okay, so could you explain to, to, our, to our listeners what that is, first of all, uh, where it originated, and update us on your progress in the 40-move challenge? Okay, well, I'm going to start out with Jack Young. is an uh, incredible chess artist, and he's created like two or three hundred of his own openings. Now, one of those is the fishing pole, right? Yeah, he was the one. Well, the fishing pole to me was just a 15-minute conversation with Jack Young, maybe 10 minutes, maybe five minutes. But I took that into a worldwide phenomenon. But Jack Young always has, he has like one to 200 um, openings that he creates himself. And the whole point of the opening is to be funny enough so that when the guy loses, he knows that a travesty has happened. <laughs> one of them is a snagglepuss. Like... He's going to play like A5 and Knight C6. <laughs> I just won with that. Recently. I haven't played it in like 30 years. Oh my God! Where does it get its name? Um, well, you no, know, the the names are all very logical. Okay. Okay. So, Snagglepuss always says like exit stage left. You know, <laughs> that's one of the things he says. Um, exit stage left. So usually, let's say I I actually lost to Vigorito playing this as black. Okay. But like after say e four d four, I've got a five and knight c six. Then he would play D5 and go to B4. And now the positional problem is two pieces are fighting for C5. Like I want my knight there and I want my bishop there. Right. But I think, yeah, I think, um, yeah, me. It seems okay. like you may have more positional problems than that, but but okay. <laughs> well, also there's John Curdle, who's a 17-time state. I think he's like a 24, 29 on it. Massachusetts champion. Okay. So I just decided that um, people see people always a, a, a harsh word from a from a respected authority can stunt a, an opening's growth for like centuries. Mm. Like Captain Black can play G six and Alakine called a, a joke opening, and that that suffocated that opening for like sixty years. Right. 
So, um, and then the Scandinavian, like people thought it was stupid or something. So yeah, that's uh, coming back in popularity now. Oh, absolutely. So the, the point is, I said, why am I waiting for permission from some person who doesn't even know the opening, just scoffs at it? I'm just going to experience every opening and see for myself how good or bad it is. So my game with Jack Young was a brilliancy. Was, uh, he, he played E4. I actually confused his name with Jack Armstrong, the weightlifter. <laughs> so, and he's like a Japanese-Chinese guy. So I had no idea that, that was the Jack Young when I played him. But I played 8-6 against uh, Jack Young and won. Okay. I put a bishop on C3, turned into a king's gambit, accepted like a Fisher defense thing. Um, anyway, so I started, I played every legal move and I had a little light notebook like Polygayeski. And I would, when I would, I would keep track. And then when I won all 40 moves in a slow classical game, that was the end of the project. So the, so the, the, again, the 40 move challenge is literally to win a rated tournament game playing slow, right? Not like a blitz game playing every single one of the 40 legal starting moves, right? Am I stating that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Like in the uh, in the the U.S. Open was in Boston, mm-hmm. and I think maybe '88 something like that. And uh, I played F3, and it turned into the the Bronstein Queen sack in the same as King's Indian. Okay. It goes Queen A4, G3, Knight G3. Which which move of the forty? Now you're doing it again this year, right? You're doing it right now. I'm almost done. I got three left, and so is Gunner. He's got like two left. So Gunner Anderson says, "You want to do the forty move challenge?" And I instantly said yes because I've been thinking <laughs> for decades, and like, when am I going to do that again? Right. So we decided. Uh, we we sort of made our own rules. They're a little different than the first time. Like, if I don't win with the move, I keep playing it until I do. Okay. So, I so you—that's part think, of the rules of the challenge, right? If you don't win with it, you have to play it again until you win with it. Yeah, but you make up your own rules. Like, um, Gunner had a rule: I don't do it if I travel. And Julian Proleko is also doing it, but he doesn't like it as much. Well, because we're not there to encourage him. Right. But uh, Gunner and I are like neck and neck. We have like two or three left. I was just actually before you called, I was gonna. Um, Joined this tournament called Candy Cane Classic. Okay. That four, it's a four-rounder, and I can maybe finish. The, I wanted to try and finish it this year. Okay. So uh, Jesse Hester has blocked three of my moves. He's also pro, uh, retired some moves too, but he's also blocked three, which is doubly painful. So what I, mean, I was going to ask is, which, which has yeah. been the hardest one to win with? Oh, no. See, I start off on the edges, so it gets easier. <laughs> So I, I'm almost done now. I think I have like E4 and maybe D5 and D6 or something like that left. Okay. So it actually is totally easy by now. It's not They're not even illegitimate. I lost with D6 on Tuesday. But the thing is I'll start with the, like the Rook files. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's great when you win right away with the Rook, rook file move, you know. Now, like do you eight. discriminate based on opponent strength? Like – you know, for example, if you're let's say you're playing a four round tournament and you know yeah. you're gonna you know you're gonna start with the rook bonds, right? Right. And but the first round, uh, okay, maybe you play a lower rated player because it's a Swiss system, but like round three, maybe you're supposed to play like knight a six or something. Are you gonna go back 
to playing a stronger opening, quote unquote well, stronger I, opening. I fluctuate on that a little bit. My my first instinct is to play the weakest move available. But I mean, like, let's say you have a, a tough against the strongest. No, like, Gunner, Gunner beat me with a five. Okay. But he had to because he'd already lost the book. Okay. So he was stuck on that. Ah, uh, so according to the rules of the of the challenge, he was required yeah. to play a five. Okay. Yeah, you had to keep playing that move. Okay. And so, a couple of times I forgot what move I was supposed to play. Uh, a couple of times, like I like I played Eamon Montgomery, an expert, like strong expert, like twenty hundred. And instead of like playing a rook pawn move, I think maybe I played c4 or something like that. Okay. So, yeah. So you do bit, fluctuate sometimes based on a opponents, right? I, I don't like to do it. I consider it poor form. Okay. But, you know, if there's like 200 bucks on the line or something, you know. Right. Now, then maybe you cheat a little bit. So there's a little bit of strategy, but basically you're trying to beat strong players with bad moves. Okay. The, actually, the hardest one was the funniest was the Sicilian. Really? Because everyone knew how to beat that. They'd play like the Rosalimo or the Grand Prix, or they or they all had their own funky system against the Sicilian. So, I mean, they prepared for that move all their life. How many games did it take you to win with C5? Four. Wow. But it also it also took me four to win with the Martian, which is both rooks, both knights out to rook three. <laughs> because those are the Martian antennae. <laughs> and I had actually on YouTube, uh, I had watched like 10 or 20 of those. So it's like, okay, I got to play the Martian. Speaking of the Martian, this is probably a good time to mention. You wrote a book a few years back, co-authored with Anthea Carson called, is it Chess for Animals? Is that right? How to Play Chess Like an Animal. How to Play Chess Like an Animal. I thought that was an irresistible title that, that I would sell millions of copies. I go, if I saw the title, I wouldn't even have to look in the book. I would just order it, you know. Right. I, I actually love the book, and, and I have some students who do too. But it's basically, there's, it's there's about... 300, there's 300 animal openings that I could choose from. And we did 30, and our publisher forced us to cut it in half. It was like Sophie's Choice. That's how painful it was. Wow. So, we, but you could you could write 10 of those books. Yeah, I mean, so so the reason I bring that up is, not only was it a, is a very, very charming book, you know, there's a lot of interesting ideas, but some of these more bizarre, for lack of a better term, opening names, um, they do have a basis in, um, well, I don't know if I want to call it reality. <laughs> but, no, no. Like yeah. The alligator is pawn to C3, mm -hmm. and it looks like uh, the Jack Young's name. It's also called Sargosa. But the thing is, it looks like an alligator snout in the water. Right, and then there's the BP so oil spill. Some of them have legitimate reasons, you know. One of my favorite like rationale behind the names is the BP oil spill opening. Can you explain that one? <laughs> okay. So I belong to this group called Unorthodox Chess Openings, that Yahoo group. Right. And so um, I was very interested in that, and you know, Jack Young and Clyde Nakamura and all their fantastic creations. Clyde Nakamura is another one that has at least 300 openings he created, different gambits and so forth. So uh, I would give, like, detailed answers. So what they said, they kicked me off. They said, you're messing up our digest, which means they, they have, like, you could, or you could get the emails, you know, as they come in or, like, digested in a week. Right. And, and my answers were so prolific that they were, I was messing up their digest. Was, <laughs> you were, you like, were messing with their chi. But I had this one girl, named, this one guy named Earl Roberts who hated me. Okay. 
Like, you know, there's always a guy that doesn't get the joke, right? Right. So he hated me, and everything I said, he was, you know, it's like everything you say, uh, he would say something horrible about the opening or me or something, you know. So I said, well, uh, an artist, it takes, like, pain, like Billie Eilish. She takes, like, you know, a guy dumping her and makes a million dollars out of it, you know. <laughs> an artist does not accept defeat. An artist just creates better art with the pain. So I said, okay, I'm going to invent an opening for this guy. I'm going to call it the Toxic Badger. <laughs> the Toxic All Badger. Right? So All right, so it goes D4, right. uh, Knight C6. Okay. okay. Is this an opening for uh, black? Yeah. Uh, D4, Knight C6. I think then, like, maybe... E4 and then F6. No. No, no. Oh, it's knight F3. Yeah. D4, knight C6, knight F3, which a lot of people play because potters are terrified to cross the Rubicon. In order, they don't, they hate pushing their pawn past the fourth rank. So after D4, knight C6, you mean they don't want to go D5? Right. Yeah. D5 okay. terrifies them. You know, that's, uh, then I have a video with, 20,000 hits called Full Metal Jacket based on D5. We sacked the knight. D4, knight C6, D5, 95, E4, E6, F4, ED. That's the Full Metal Jacket. Been playing that for like 15 years. Um, and, you know, tons of emails about that. But, okay, so D4, knight C6, now knight F3. So I go, okay, I'm going to do the Toxic Badger. I play F6, and now the square F7 is a Badger den. <laughs> all right okay so like the knight might get kicked back to his den you know like right you push the knight around too many times he might end up on f7 so right then, like knight c6 to e5 to f7 so from there then we went to the um the exxon valdez which is where you would play like d6 and e5 and like bishop d4 is destroying you you know, right, right, because of the light squares. Yeah. Right, and I'm saying I'm leaking light squares. <laughs> yes. Everywhere. So that's uh, that's why I love the BP oil spill opening so much because of your description of it. Right. You're and like then, as solid as an oil tanker on the dark squares. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but leaking oil everywhere on the white. And then the best part is the BP oil spill takes it to the next level. It's a toxic badger plus the Exxon Valdez. <laughs> so now we have knight c6, f6. D6, E5, but to, in order to be a full BP oil spill, you play G5 and H5. Right. So then you have just a complete grip on the dark squares. but Yeah, just like a psycho attack if they don't destroy you on the light squares. Right, right. <laughs> and I win like almost every game, you know. I See, I love, I love totally these opening check. names. And of course, they haven't seen it, so they're just like freaking out, you know. Right, right. I played in the Chicago Open uh, this year. How'd you do? In that game, I played this woman. I think her name was Savchenko or something like that. Uh -huh. She's really good. We had a battle royal, and I think I lost in like a hundred moves. Wow! But, but the you know, as far as the opening, the opening worked great. I, I had the advantage, and but we got into time pressure. That I mean, she's a pretty tough player. So right, she's like an expert woman that, that's very good. But I just gave her a hug and took a picture after the game. Well, Brian, uh, speaking of time pressure, we're up against uh, the clock here. But is there is there anything else that we should get to in terms of a story or, or, or anything else to finish up on before we have to 
before well, I, I just, call I'll it. tell one more story. Uh, the Ponziani, the uh, <clears throat> um, when I was eight years old, I played the Ponziani. I thought he invented it. <laughs> And then um, that's that's how I felt about Queen's Gambit accepted, because my oh. dad taught me how to play chess, and I right. thought I'm winning a free pawn right here. <laughs> this, is, this is the I best opening ever. And then I can guard it with B5, and you know I can make C6, A6, all the all the guarding moves, and I'm just gonna win. <laughs> you got excited about the win already? Yeah. Um. So then I started, like 40 years ago, I was sacking a piece. Uh, E4, E5, Knight F3, Knight T6, C3, Knight F6, D4, Knight E4, D5. And then you sack a piece with Bishop C5 and Pawn takes Knight. Now all the books for all the years said that was no good. I remember some of your emails on this. Yeah, Yeah, I've been doing it for like eight years, I think. And... uh, then with computers, as they got better and better, I go, oh, my God, this ridiculous thing which I always lose with is actually strong. And 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 actually, not only is it beautiful, but at least the thousands of fractals, like uh, imbalances, like every possible imbalance you can imagine. So this totally beautiful unknown line is like discovering a secret garden or something. So then I started uh, doing emails, and there was um, on chess.com, there was the Ponziani group. A guy named David wrote a book uh, called Play the Ponziani, and then we would have messages back and forth. And then pretty soon, like, Watson put it in his book, and Tamburo put it in his book. And, this one particular piece sack line. Yeah. I, I think the trick is you, you play bishop f2 check and then go all the way back to b6. And I think maybe 25 years ago, Peter Heine Nielsen played it. Okay. And Tim Crab. But then it was just forgotten. You know, because there's no computers to back it up. They Maybe they just used their instincts. Right. But uh, it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful sack. So I just wanted to throw it out there and let the world discover it because it was like too much for one person. I think but that... that was my happiest discovery. I'll, I'll say this, you know... Um, all of the emails that I've read of yours where you're, you're throwing yourself or some part of you out there and letting the world discover it, I've really enjoyed uh, quite a bit. Um, so what I hope we can do is we can get some of those um, to post along with this podcast for our listeners to check out. Maybe a Ponziani email, maybe some yeah. of your older ones. Maybe we can even dig up the the bullwhip email and the, uh, you know, <laughs> my personal favorite, the one with the guy riding in on the motorcycle and stealing his girlfriend and breaking out. If we can find those, um, I would love to put those up if we can. So, so listeners can get sort of a, a taste, if you will, of the Brian wall experience. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, Brian, this has been awesome. We could, I know, I know you and I could go back and forth and on this all night, um, and keep talking. Um, and, and, and I hope, in the future, all of my guests who I bring on, I hope I hope will be repeat guests. So I hope we can do another night, maybe just on unorthodox openings. Sure, anything. Cool. Um, but thank you for coming on. Uh, let's get some of those emails. If you would, send them my way. We'll get them posted for our uh, listeners to check out and maybe subscribe to your email list willingly. Yep. 
That was a quick hour. It was actually we're uh, I think we're we're even well over that. Um, but but thank you for being here and for uh, educating our masses, if you will. And um, I look forward to many more discussions down the road. Yeah, I feel like we can go for 16 more hours. I know. I feel like we've been talking for 10 minutes. So. <laughs> All right, thanks, Pete. You're welcome. I, uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And thanks for being on the Chess Underground. Tactical struggle. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis.